Section two of Natural Science and Religion by Asa Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lecture one Scientific Beliefs Part two. The idea of ends involves that of individuality. The higher animals, and men among them, are complete individuals. We cannot make the idea of individuality any clearer than by adducing them as examples of it. In the lowest form of life, in those amorphous or indefinitely polymorphous little lumps of protoplasm, which the biologists have made known to us, and even, perhaps, in a stratum or mass which takes the form of whatever bounds it, it is said that we may contemplate the phenomena of life in that which has no manifest individuality. What have we between these two extremes? The first and simplest individuality is that of cells. Cell doctrine, or the cellular composition of plants and animals, belongs wholly to the biological science of the last half-century, although the name is older, and some knowledge of the structure in plants is as old as the microscope. The homologizing of animals with plants in this regard began about forty years ago, and the doctrine of the individual life of cells is recent. Unfortunately, the rather inappropriate name cell came into use before the structure was rightly understood, and may be misleading. It was given, naturally enough, to the walls circumscribing cavities in ordinary plant tissue, before it was understood that the walls were not made and then filled, before it was known that the contents are the living thing, and the wall an encasement or shell. The substance of our recent knowledge is that a plant is an aggregate of organic units, mostly of very small size, that these are to the herb or tree what the bricks and stones of this chapel are to the edifice, only they are living stones fitly framed together, in organic growth, and their walls answer to the cement. Animals do not differ materially, except that the mortar is mostly of the same nature as the bricks, and there is a greater, or at length complete, fusion or confluence of the cells. The component material, the protoplasm, is essentially the same, as has already been stated. But each aggregate, each ordinary plant or animal, begins as one cell, which is then the simple individual. This in growth and propagation divides itself into two, these two into four, these into sixteen, and so on, thus building up the structure, a whole of which the individual cells are component parts. The simplest plant begins in the same way, with an initial cell, but this, instead of multiplying with cohesion into a structure, multiplies with separation into progeny. Other simple plants go on without separation to form a row of similar cells, which may casually fall apart into individuals or may remain connected but in either case each has its own life, and does what the others do, so that the separation or the continued connection is a matter of indifference. But when, higher in the scale, structures are built up, what were individuals become parts or organs, or the thousandth or millionth part of an organ. Then the life of the cells is their own no less, but their individuality blends in the common life of the aggregate. By increasing complexity of organization, with increasing subordination of parts and specialization of office, the highest plants and animals are composed. In them, each unit or cell has its own life and its own nutrition, while also contributing to the common wheel, some by this function, some by that, but in the higher forms all are somehow controlled by a pervasive life and directed to common ends, ends the more various, complex, and special, in proportion to the rank of the organism in the scale of being. So, too, the component cells become effete and die, while the aggregate life continues and the continued structure, which is nothing but an aggregate, is somehow informed, animated, and operated by a common life of higher grade than that of any or all its components. 
in numerous lower plants and animals we cannot definitely determine what are organisms and what are organs in the herb or tree and in the coral polypidum organ individual colony are inextricably blended in the higher animals subordination of parts to a whole is completely attained all along the ascent that which controls and subordinates parts aggrandizes its manifestations the lowest animals add very little to merely vegetative life except greater sensitiveness to external impressions and more free and varied response a step higher brings in a greater range of unconscious feeling the higher brute animals have attained unto specific desires affections imagination and the elements of simple thought the highest gifted with reflective reason may make their own thoughts the subject of thought so our conception of individuality is from ourselves conscious beings it is carried down unqualified to the brute animals with which we are associated it becomes vague and shadowy in plants but still somehow the idea inheres throughout all organisms the beginning of organization is individuation or tendency to individualize the complete itself is man here let me interject a remark in correction of a common misapprehension as regards the nature of the simplicity of the lowest organisms an animalcule and a unicellular plant or the cellular components of common plants or animals are simple indeed comparatively but the recent science which has brought out the close connection of the lower with the higher forms and showed that through all one increasing purpose runs is also showing in all the latest microscopic work that the plant cell and the animal cell are really very complex structures and the processes through which one cell becomes two instead of being a simple bisection prove to be very elaborate and wonderful the further the investigation is carried under the modern microscope the more complex and recondite does their structure and behavior appear to be they seemed to be simple because they are small but much of the simplicity vanishes upon intimate acquaintance wherefore in view of recent discoveries of this sort it is premature to conclude that the little lumps of protoplasm described by Haeckel are really destitute of organic structure it is an illusion to fancy that the mystery of life is less in an amoeba or a blood corpuscle than in a man from individuals in themselves let us pass to questions relating to their succession and kinds plants and animals each propagating their kind produce lines of individuals sustaining to each other the relation of parent and progeny these lines are the species of the naturalist have the species come down from the beginning of life unaltered or altered or have there been successive creations taking first the vegetable and animal kingdoms as a whole it has long been well understood that ages upon ages have passed since the earth was stocked with living beings of numerous sorts kind after kind has appeared flourished and disappeared and in the long succession species of progressively higher rank have come into existence the forms more and more approximating those which now exist there is good reason to believe that at more than one epoch the earth has been as fully stocked with species as it is now and in equal diversity except as to the highest types what relation have these beings of the earlier and of the succeeding times sustained to each other and to the present inhabitants of the earth half a century ago when i began to read scientific books and journals the commonly received doctrine was that the earth had been completely depopulated and repopulated over and over each time with a distinct population and that the species which now along with man occupy the present surface of the earth belong to an ultimate and independent creation having an ideal but no genealogical connection with those that preceded this view as a rounded whole and in all its essential elements has very recently disappeared from science it died a royal death with agassiz who maintained it with all his great ability as long as it was tenable i am not aware that it now has any scientific upholder 
it is certain that there has been no absolute severance of the present from the nearer past for while some species have taken the place of other species not a few have survived unchanged or almost unchanged and it is most probable that this holds throughout for certain species appear to have bridged the intervals between successive epochs all along the line surviving from one to another and justifying the inference that species however originated have come in and gone out one by one and that probably no universal catastrophe has ever blotted out life from the earth life seems to have gone on through many and great vicissitudes now with losses now with renewals and everywhere at length with change but from first to last it has inhered in one system of nature one vegetable and one animal kingdom which themselves show indications of a common starting point as respects the vegetation from which i should naturally draw illustrations the nature and amount of the likeness between the existing flora and that of a preceding geological period has recently been summed up by saporta in the statement that there is not a tree nor a shrub in europe or north america which has not recognizable relatives in the fossil remains of the tertiary period it is like visiting a country churchyard where the rude forefathers of the hamlet sleep and spelling out one by one from mossed and broken gravestones the names of most of the living inhabitants of the parish names differing it may be in orthography from those on the village signs but as of the people so of the trees it is beyond reasonable doubt that the later are descendants of the earlier the same holds true of animals and the facts therefore point toward the conclusion that existing species in general are descended from tertiary ancestors but if so they have mostly undergone change and great change as we go farther back with the comparison and there are many existing forms of which no fossil ancestor is known what relation if any can these sustain to a bygone flora or fauna and with what reason do we predicate change of species in former times if they are not changeable now this brings up the question of the fixity or variability of species scientific opinion upon this point is not what it was thirty or forty years ago then it was generally though not universally believed that species are perfectly definite and stable capable of variation indeed but only within circumscribed limits wherever it was difficult or impracticable to discriminate them the difficulty was presumed to be not in the things themselves but in the imperfection of the naturalist's knowledge or acumen there was the evidence of a good number of cases to show that species had not perceptibly altered in four or five thousand years and of some having lasted for a vastly longer time hence it was an article of scientific faith that species on the whole were fixed now and that probably they have come down essentially unaltered from the beginning a beginning which was wholly beyond the ken and scope of science which is concerned with questions about how things go on and has nothing to say as to how they absolutely began the naturalists of that day might suppose certainly many of them did suppose that existing species may have come into being by other than direct supernatural origination and indeed the foremost of them were well aware that the question of origin would have to be re-argued at no distant day but so far the various speculative attempts at explaining the mystery of the incoming of species had not been encouraging and eminent naturalists deprecated all general theories of the sort as at the best a waste of time so the fixity and inscrutability of species though silently doubted by some and controverted by a few was still the postulate of natural history and more than one laborious naturalist has been known to declare that if this fixity was not complete natural history was not worth pursuing as a science there is now a different attitude toward this class of questions first the absoluteness of species is no longer taken for granted that species have a stability that every form reproduces after its kind is obvious 
but it is equally obvious that the similarity of its individuals is not complete it had been assumed that the differences brought about by variation are always comparatively small unessential and limited this is now partly doubted and partly explained away in the first place much of the popular idea of the distinctness of all species rests on a fallacy which is obvious enough when once pointed out in systematic works every plant and animal must be referred to some species every species is described by such and such marks and in the books one species is as good as another the absoluteness of species being the postulate of the science was taken for granted to begin with and so all the forms which have been named and admitted into the systematic works as species are thereby assumed to be completely distinct all the doubts and uncertainties which may have embarrassed the naturalist when he proposed or admitted a particular species the nice balancing of the probabilities and the hesitating character of the judgment either do not appear at all in the record or are overlooked by all but the critical student whether the form under consideration should be regarded as a new species or should be combined with others into a more generalized and variable species is a question which a naturalist has to decide for the time being often upon insufficient and always upon incomplete knowledge and increasing knowledge and wider observation generally raise full as many doubts as they settle this may not be so decidedly the case in zoology as in botany but i incline to the opinion that there is no wide difference in this respect the patient and plodding botanist spends much of his time in the endeavor to draw specific lines between the parts of a series the extremes of which are patently different while the means seem to fill the interval when he is addressed by the triumphant popular argument if one form and one species has been derived from another show us the intermediate forms which prove it he can only ejaculate his wish that this ideal vegetable kingdom was the one he had to deal with moreover when he shows the connecting links he is told then these are all varieties of one species species are fixed only with wider variation than was thought and when he points to the wide difference between the extremes as being greater than that between undoubted species he is met with the rejoinder then here are two or three or more species which undoubtedly have true distinctions if only you would find them out that is quite possible but it is hardly possible that such fine differences are supernatural someone when asked if he believed in ghosts replied no he had seen too many of them so i have been at the making and unmaking of far too many species to retain any overweening confidence in their definiteness and stability i believe in them certainly i do not exactly agree that they are shadows not substantial things but i believe that they have only a relative fixity and permanence you will ask if lack of capacity to interbreed is not a criterion of species i must answer no as a matter of course individuals of widely diverse species cannot interbreed those of related species not uncommonly do but it is said that when they do interbreed the hybrid progeny is sterile commonly it is so sometimes not the rule is not sufficiently true to serve as a test either in the vegetable or in the animal kingdom the only practical use of the test is for the discrimination of the higher grade of varieties from species now in fact some varieties of the same species will hardly interbreed at all while some species interbreed most freely and produce fully fertile offspring so the supposed criterion fails in the only cases in which it could be of service all that can be said is that whereas known varieties tend to interbreed with unimpaired and sometimes with increased fertility distinct species of near resemblance tend not to interbreed at all and between the two extremes there are all intermediate conditions here as throughout organic nature the extremes are far apart the interval is filled with gradations what then is the substantial difference between varieties and species just here is the turning point between the former view and the present the former doctrine was that varieties come about in the course of nature but species not that varieties became what they are 
but that species were originally made what they are. I suppose that, even before the day of Darwinism, most working naturalists were reaching the conviction that this distinction was untenable, that the same rule was applicable to both, and therefore that either varieties did not come in the course of nature, or that species did. Perfectly apprehending the alternative and its consequences, Agassiz took the ground that varieties as well as species were primordial, or rather that the more marked forms called varieties by most naturalists were species, and therefore original creations. Rightly to understand his view, it must be taken along with his conception of species, as consisting from the very first of a multitude of individuals. Other naturalists were looking to the opposite alternative, and were coming to the conclusion that species as well as varieties were natural developments. In botany, this conclusion was reached more than sixty years ago, through observation and experiment, by an English clergyman and naturalist, Herbert, afterward Dean of Manchester. He announced his conviction that, quote, Horticultural experiments have established, beyond the possibility of doubt, that botanical species are only a higher and more permanent class of varieties, close quote, and consequently that the genus is the progenitor of the species belonging to it. Others have reached the same conclusion by more speculative routes, and have deduced the theoretical consequences, but no marked impression was made until the hypothesis of natural selection, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, was promulgated, and supplied a scientific reason for the diversification of varieties into species. The principle brought to view is too obvious to have been wholly overlooked. It is interesting to notice that the earliest known anticipation of that principle which Darwin and Wallace developed almost simultaneously was published sixty years ago by Dr. Wells, the sagacious author of the theory of Dew, who hit upon the idea of natural selection while resident in America. As abstracted by Mr. Darwin, who evidently takes delight in the discovery of these anticipations, the points which Dr. Wells made were substantially these. All animals vary more or less. Agriculturists improve domesticated animals by selection. What is thus done by art is done with equal efficacy, though more slowly, by nature, in the formation of varieties of mankind fitted for the country which they inhabit, and in this way. Negroes and mulattoes enjoy immunity from certain tropical diseases, and white men a comparative immunity from those of cold climates. Under the variation common to all animals, some of the darker would be better adapted than the rest to bear the diseases of a warm country, say of tropical Africa. This race would consequently multiply, while the others would decrease, directly because the prevalent diseases would be more fatal to them, and indirectly by inability to contend with their more vigorous neighbors. Through the continued operation of the same causes, darker and darker races would prevail over the less dark, and in time would monopolize the region where they originated, or into which they had advanced. Similarly would white races, to the exclusion of dark, be developed and prevail in cooler regions. Now, this simple principle, extended from races to species, from the present to geological ages, from man and domesticated animals to all animals and plants, from struggle with disease to struggle for food, for room, and against the diverse hardships which at times beset all living things, and which are intensified by the Malthusian law of the pressure of population on subsistence, population tending to multiply in geometrical progression, while food can increase only in a much lower ratio, and room may not be increasable at all, so that out of multitudinous progeny only the few fittest to the special circumstances in each generation can possibly survive and propagate. This is Darwinism. That is, Darwinism pure and simple, free from all speculative accretions. Here it may be remarked that natural selection by itself is not an hypothesis nor even a theory. It is a truth, 
a catena of facts and direct inferences from facts. As has been happily said, it is a truth of the same kind as that which we enunciate in saying that round stones will roll down a hill further than flat ones. There's no doubt that natural selection operates. The open question is, what do its operations amount to? The hypothesis based on this principle is that the struggle for life and survival of only the fittest among individuals, all disposed to vary, and no two exactly alike, will account for the diversification of the species and forms of vegetable and animal life, will even account for the rise, in the course of countless ages, from simpler and lower to higher and more specialized living beings. We need not here enter into any further explanation of this now familiar but not always well understood hypothesis, nor need I here pronounce any judgment of my own upon it. No doubt it may account for much which has not received other scientific explanation, and Mr. Darwin is not the man to claim that it will account for everything. But before we can judge at all of its capabilities, we need clearly to understand what is contained in the hypothesis, for what can be got out of it in the way of explanation depends upon what has gone into it. So certain discriminations should here be attended to. Natural selection we understand to be a sort of personification or generalized expression for the processes and the results of the whole interplay of living things on the earth with their inorganic surroundings and with each other. The hypothesis asserts that these may account not for the introduction of life, but for its diversification into the forms and kinds which we now behold. This, I suppose, is tantamount to asserting that the differences between one species and another now existing, and between these and their predecessors, has come to pass in the course of nature, that is, without miracle. In these days all agree that a scientific inquiry whether this may be so, that is, whether there are probable grounds for believing it, no thoughtful person expects to prove it, is perfectly legitimate, and, so far as it becomes probable, I imagine that you might safely accept it. For the hypothesis, in its normal and simplest form, when kept close to the facts and free from extraneous assumptions, is merely this. Given the observed capacity for variation as an inexhaustible factor, assuming that what has varied is still prone to vary, and there are grounds for the assumption, and natural selection will, so to say, pick out for preservation the fittest forms for particular surroundings, lead on and diversify them, and by continual elimination of the less fit, segregate the survivors into distinct species. This, you see, assumes, and does not account for, the impulse to variation, assumes that variation is an inherent and universal capacity, and is the efficient cause of all the diversity, while natural selection is the proximate cause of it. So it is the selection, not the creation of forms, that is accounted for. Darwinism does not so much explain why we have the actual forms, as it does why we have only these and not all intermediate forms. In short, why we have species. There is, of course, a cause for the variation. Nobody supposes that anything changes without a cause. And there's no reason for thinking that proximate causes of variation may not come to be known. But we hardly know the conditions, still less the causes, now. The point I wish to make here is that natural selection, however you expand its meaning, cannot be invoked as the cause of that upon which it operates, i.e. variation. Otherwise, if by natural selection is meant the totality of all the known and unknown causes of whatever comes to pass in organic nature, then the term is no longer an allowable personification, but a sheer abstraction, which, meaning everything, can explain nothing. It is like saying that whatever happens is the cause of whatever comes to pass. We may conclude, therefore, that natural selection, in the sense of the originator of the term, and in the only congruous sense, stands for the influence of inorganic nature upon living things, along with the influence of these upon each other, and that what it purports to account for is the picking out, from the multitude of incipient variations, of the few which are to survive, 
and which thereby acquire distinctness. There is a further assumption in the hypothesis which must not be overlooked, namely that the variation of plants and animals, out of which so much comes, is indefinite or all-directioned and accidental. This, I would insist, is no fundamental part of the hypothesis of the derivation of species, and is clearly no part of the principle of natural selection. But it is an assumption which Mr. Darwin judges to be warranted by the facts, and in some of its elements it is unavoidable. Evidently, if the innate tendency to vary upon which physical circumstances operate is indefinite, then the variations which the circumstances elicit, and which could not otherwise amount to anything, must be accidental in the same sense as are the circumstances themselves. Out of this would immediately rise the question as to what can be the foundation and beginning of this long and wonderful chapter of accidents, which has produced and maintained, not only for this time but through all biological periods, an ever-varying yet ever-well-adapted cosmos. But the facts, so far as I can judge, do not support the assumption of every-sided and indifferent variation. Variation is somehow and somewhere introduced in the transit from parent to offspring. The actual variations displayed by the progeny of a particular plant or animal may differ much in grade, and tend in more than one direction, but in fact they do not appear to tend in many directions. It is generally agreed that the variation is from within, is an internal response to external impressions. All that we can possibly know of the nature of the inherent tendency to vary must be gathered from the facts of the response, and these, I judge, are not such as to require or support the assumption of a tendency to wholly vague and all-directioned variation. Let us here correct a common impression that Darwinian evolution predicates actual or necessary variation of all existing species, and counts that the variation must be in some definite ratio to the time. That is not the idea, nor the fact. Quote, Evolution is not a course of haphazard and incessant change, but a continuing readjustment which may or may not, according to circumstances, involve considerable changes in a given time. Every form is in a relatively stable equilibrium, else it would not exist. Forms adjusted to their surroundings ought by the hypothesis to remain unchanged until the circumstances change. Only those of their variations could come to anything which happened to be equally well adapted to the unchanged circumstances, and this may be what we have when two or more nearly related species inhabit similar stations in the same area. From this point of view, you see how wide of the mark are those who imagine that Darwinian evolution supposes that the organic world was in early times, or at any time, out of joint or in ill relations to the surroundings. On the contrary, it is of the very nature of natural selection that, while inducing changes eventually immense, it should preserve throughout all time a condition of harmonious adaptation. Catastrophes must destroy, but gradual modification, under the long and silent struggle which never hastes and never rests, preserves while it renovates and diversifies the races. I ought here to state that there are eminent naturalists, one of them of your own university, who accept the doctrine of evolution, but who think little of natural selection as a modus operandi in the diversification of species. And there are distinguished writers, not naturalists, who, from other points of view, are ready to accept, quote, the doctrine of the successive evolution from ancestral germs of higher and higher forms of life and mind, close quote, while they profess to have buried the principle of natural selection, and with it, the Malthusian theory of population, in one common grave. These are evolutionists, in their way, because the probability of evolutionary theories springs from the very various lines of facts, otherwise inexplicable, which they harmonize and explain. In geology, the previous existence of forms, more and more like those now existing, and at length coalescing in them. In geography, the actual distribution of species and genera over the Earth's surface, 
in systematic natural history the reason why species and genera and orders are so variously related are here connected by transitions and there separated by wide gaps in morphology why the same functions may be assumed by different organs or the same kind of organ may perform here one function and there another or again exist as a vestige of no service at all in anatomy and biology the transition from one element of structure to another the gradual specialization of organs and the remarkable coincidence between the order of the development in the individual animal and that of the rise from low to high in the scale of being and that of the successive appearance of the grades in time finally in psychology the gradations between beings endowed with rudimentary sensation and beings endowed with mind here where the touch of nature makes the whole world kin we reach the sensitive point man while on the one side a wholly exceptional being is on the other an object of natural history a part of the animal kingdom if you agree with quatrefage that man is a kingdom by himself you must agree with him that this kingdom is solely intellectual that he is as certainly and completely an animal as he is certainly something more we are sharers not only of animal but of vegetable life sharers with the higher brute animals in common instincts and feelings and affections it seems to me that there is a sort of meanness in the wish to ignore the tie I fancy that human beings may be more humane when they realize that, as their dependent associates live a life in which man has a share, so they have rights which man is bound to respect. Man, in short, is a partaker of the natural as well as of the spiritual. And the evolutionist may say with the apostle, quote, Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Close quote. Man, formed of the dust of the ground, endowed with the breath of life, became a living soul is there any warrant for affirming that these processes were instantaneous as has just been intimated the characteristic of that particular theory of evolution which is now in the ascendant is that by taking advantage of every creature's best for bettering conditions it has made strife work for good throughout an immensely long line of adjustments and readjustments in a series ascending as it advanced that it supposes a process not from discord to harmony but from simpler to fuller and richer harmonies conserving throughout the best adaptations to the then existing conditions so while its advocates nowhere contemplate a state quote, when nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay and could not heave her head close quote, they may appropriate dryden's closing lines quote, from harmony from heavenly harmony this universal frame began from harmony to harmony through all the compass of the notes it ran the diapason closing full in man close quote i have now indicated at more than sufficient length for one discourse some of the principal recent changes and present tendencies in scientific belief especially in biology even the most advanced of the views here presented are held by very many scientific men some as established truths some as probable opinions there is a class moreover by whom all these scientific theories and more are held as ascertained facts and as the basis of philosophical inferences which strike at the root of theistic beliefs it remains to consider what attitude thoughtful men and christian believers should take respecting them and how they stand related to beliefs of another order that will be the topic of a following lecture end of lecture one part two